Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. You know I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. On the show today, I've got my friend Ed Dandridge. Now, Ed is the Senior Vice President and Chief Communications Officer at The Boeing Company, In this role, he serves on the executive council and oversees all aspects of Boeing's communications, including business unit comms, corporate comms, media relations, public affairs, leadership communications, employee engagement, and corporate branding, as well as channel and content marketing. Prior to Boeing, Ed was Global Chief Marketing and Communications Officer for AIG, General Insurance. Previously to that, he was Chief Marketing and Communications Officer for Marsh and McLennan Companies. He's also had executive roles at the National Association of Investment Companies, as well as leadership roles like CMO of Collective, Chief Communications Officer of Nielsen, Managing Partner of Brandsphere, and VP of Disney's ABC Television Network. Ed currently is the Chair of the Board of Directors of the Susan G. Komen Breast Cancer Foundation and... He's also vice chair of the Executive Leadership Council. Now, that's a big lead up to my friend and, and, and just the great guy that he is. And we talk a lot about the companies that he's been a part of and what attracts him to challenging assignments like AIG after the financial crisis or Boeing most recently after the 
CEO transitions as well as the max airplane uh, challenges that the company has gone through and is coming out of. So much, much more to learn and understand how Ed, frankly, sees the world. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with my friend, Ed Dandridge. Ed, welcome to the show. We finally were able to get this done. I know, I know. And I'm excited to talk to you today. I am too. And even with everything that we are navigating over the course of the past year, and as we look to 2022, this is a great time to have this conversation. I appreciate your tenacity and patience in making it happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love to start off with something personal, a little story or tidbit about you. And I know for much of your early life, you lived overseas. You had a dad that I believe was in the foreign service. And so I was curious, what was maybe one of your fondest memories living in foreign lands or places not the U.S.? It's an interesting story. So I'm at the Boeing company now, and one of our largest facilities is in Charleston, South Carolina. It's just a stone's throw from where I was born, which was on an Air Force base called Shaw Air Force Base. My family's from Philadelphia. My parents, my father was stationed there, and then he eventually transitioned into the State Department. We grew up, my brother and I, barnstorming around the world, working, my father working at embassies around the world, in elementary school in Paris, France, primary school, early nursery school in Taipei, Taiwan, and then high school in Athens, Greece. The last two years of my high school experience in Athens were pretty unique and spectacular. And the thing that I would just reflect on is I got exposed to this program called Model United Nations, where hundreds of schools from around the world came to The Hague every year and did mock Model United Nations General Assembly and very specific programs around resolutions to some of the world's biggest problems. It was a great exposure to how to negotiate, how to articulate and advocate for positions, but it was also a really good experience in global understanding and tolerance. And I think that if we could really lean into that same energy and spirit that teenagers have right now trying to solve some of the world's problems, we might have some different energy around some of the big issues we're facing today. So certainly helped shape me uh, and make me the global thinker I am today, just having that immersive experience at a really formative age. And I totally agree. If people could discourse and debate and have a good force of, of idea sharing back and forth, we could accomplish a lot in particular. But man, Greece in high school, that must have been beautiful too. Like just beaches, water, it sounds like a vacation. Yeah, it was. It sounded that way. It wasn't really that way. It was a rigorous academic experience like you would find in any international high school. What was different was all the extracurriculars we participated in some pretty competitive extracurricular, whether it was forensics, debate society, United Nations, or sports. The regional competitions were with different schools from different parts of Europe. Let's talk about your career path. And you weren't slacking. I, I didn't mean to imply that. You're Greece, beautiful country. I know you were not slacking because you ended up at Tufts, which is no no easy place to get into. It's an interesting experience. This is pre-internet, of course. And because we were halfway around the world, it wasn't like I, I flew back and, and viewed a bunch of college campuses. I did make some educated guesses, but did a lot of primary research. And there was this New York Times guide to colleges 
that sort of was the guidebook. And I read a lot. And there was just something about Tufts that captured my imagination. Of course, it had a very strong international relations orientation. It was uh, in suburban Boston. It was sort of the right size. And it was seen as a breeding ground for diplomats. And it was something that I knew felt comfortable with. And so I applied, I got in, I headed off to Boston to Tufts. And the very first time I saw the campus was the first day of orientation. That's funny. That's funny. So you go to Tufts, you come out, end up going to law school and becoming a lawyer. What happened to the diplomat path? It was interesting. The whole experience I had, whether it was in Paris, France, or Athens, Greece, being exposed to the diplomatic community was that there were three, sometimes four different components to it. So the foundational level of, of a lot of countries where the United States has an active presence, the backbone of it is the armed services, the military, the, the U.S. military base, however large or small it is, even if it is employed at the, the embassy. And those are people who you know put country first and foremost, and we thank their service. And they are always the you know, like essential piece there. Then there will always be a community of civil servants, some of whom have dual citizenship, in this case, American and Greek, and they live in Greece, they are Greek, they speak Greek, they're very Greek acclimated, but they might have been born in the United States, and they serve very critical roles as the day-to-day folks who make the embassy and the U.S. operations work. And then, of course, you have the diplomatic corps who cycle in in intervals. And then there's that broader business community that is both at once global and then also in a lot of cases very clearly defined by large leading American companies that have these outposts around the world. And as I got older, I just really became fascinated with the ability to have real diplomatic impact in the private sector because I had spent so much time looking over my father's shoulder watching other civil servants, State Department officials, and even diplomats and ambassadors navigate that sphere. For me, what felt like a new challenge and new opportunity was this whole idea of corporate diplomacy and be able to take the impact of the private sector to help augment public diplomacy. And so I went to college thinking, hey, you'll do this in some fashion, came out of college with some student loans, a little bit more understanding of economics, a little bit of a fascination with the private sector thinking there has to be some role, Ed, where you could take a combination of your global experience, your bias towards diplomacy and negotiation, and then the practice of law. And maybe instead of being an ambassador for the United States in a country, you could be the ambassador of a corporation. And that's how I went to law school. I didn't really have a very crystallized view. I had a general notional sense didn't realize that many years later, I would have this career that's at the intersection of public-private policy and partnerships, high-stakes reputational issues, and a global operating environment for large leading brands. So I want to tell you that this was intentional, exactly where I'm supposed to be. Ironically, I think I found the right place, although the path was decidedly nonlinear. That's how most people do it. It's rare that you knew from birth that you wanted to be X and you become X. <laughs> You've had some amazing stops along the way. You, you said started with the lawyer thing, did some political consulting from what I understand, ended up at ABC, the television network. And I, I think that was like the, I don't know if that was truly the first business gig that you had, like big business gig. I would describe it as the first client side, right? So 
practiced law for a number of years and worked briefly in political consulting at a firm that really got bought by a major publicly traded advertising holding company. They took the political firm and turned us into a crisis management firm, which really did prepare me with immersion into corporations because you piloted when they had a crisis. And that led to me being hired in the late 90s at, at ABC, just after it had been bought by Disney. Very interesting time for the business model as cable really started to mature and you have these other non-traditional broadcast assets start to become as valuable. The Disney Channel, the Soap Channel, ESPN, something that people had heard of. It was a fundamental moment foundationally uh, for me from a communication standpoint to be working in, in broadcast television at that moment of change at the dawn of the new millennium. It was pretty f formidable time, like you said, with all those properties. And yes, we have all heard of ESPN. <laughs> but you mentioned something, political consulting turned into kind of a crisis management firm, ultimately. That may have been a seminal moment in your career, because as I think about some of the other places you've been, Nielsen, right after the financial crisis, going through huge digital transformation, or... AIG, after the financial crisis, trying to rebuild and reestablish themselves and build back a reputation. And now Boeing, as chief communication officers, after a couple of CEO, or at least one CEO transition and the 737 MAX issues that have plagued the company, you don't shy away from big challenges. <laughs> are you attracted to those challenges or are you being pulled into that because of this kind of diplomatic skill set combination that you've got? It's a good question. I do think you get to a certain stage in your career and you move past thinking you got hired for the job because you're always the best person. I think we all think, oh, of course I got hired. I'm the most qualified person. But it's important to understand what employers are looking for at a particular moment when you do get hired. And along the way, certainly that diplomatic experience and that having practiced law made me a bit of a non-traditional communications executive and a, a more of a non-traditional marketer. Now, when I was at ABC, there was a very clear correlation between voters and viewers. And then having practiced law, there's a very clear analogy to be drawn between drafting a brief or a motion in the court of law and then a speech or a press release in the court of public opinion. And not a lot of people see those innate connections. And then the bridge, of course, is working on political campaigns where on a particular date in November, typically the first Tuesday in November, you're trying to get people to vote for a candidate. Whereas in marketing, if it's the launch of a product on a particular date, Black Friday, for example, you're trying to get people to vote with their pocketbook. The analogy pulls through. Uh, and I think because I'd spent so much time out of the country coming back in and getting acclimated, for me, using those different constructs, whether it was the principles of political consulting to achieve marketing goals or applying legal reasoning and legal analysis and legal advocacy in communications, I was able to merge those together. And in a lot of these circumstances where I've been hired, typically the conventional approach to managing whether it's communications or marketing has been tried and had some degree of success, but the challenge has reached a different level of complexity with a lot of different stakeholders. So the opportunity to think differently and maybe have a different risk appetite for bringing in someone new and different 
led me to being hired first, I think, at, at ABC, candidly, and then again, Nielsen. And then at that point, I think you start to have a little bit of a brand. If it's a novel set of circumstances with some high stakes reputational issues playing out in the public domain, I'm not the only person that can do it, but I think there are a handful of us that have done them across a lot of different industries. And then you start to, your name pops up on those lists. And I've certainly had my name pop up on some of those lists, whether it's around notable sports leagues or other institutions facing significant crisis and change. What I've not done is been the person who, when everything is going smoothly in a company and someone who's a predecessor is getting ready to retire, oh, Ed looks just like me. I'm going to reach out to him and groom him and get him ready to succeed me. So it's been a really great career path for me, not always the most direct, certainly more challenging in certain ways, but in the end, I think profoundly more rewarding. I'm envisioning you, sorry to make light of this, but envisioning you in a white trench coat coming in like Olivia Pope from Scandal to turn the business around, right size it, get us out of this mess that we're in. Yeah, nothing that quite dramatic or that sort of scandal laden. I've been lucky to work for some really world-class organizations led by world-class CEOs and board and executives. And I, I would say it's rather less dramatic than that, or I think studied, but at the same time measurable in terms of like very clear quantitative baseline establishment, a very clear-eyed understanding of what was realistic in terms of short, medium, long-term success, and a recognition that an insular approach or a top-down chain of command communications or marketing approach is not likely to be as successful in a highly visible, dynamic, transparent environment with a lot of stakeholders, both internally and externally, and some of whom in some of those stakeholder circumstances, success for one group of stakeholders is actually at the expense of others. And so finding the win-win for multiple stakeholders is always a critical part of it. I'm glad you bring up the long storied brands that you've worked for because I we talk a lot about brands and branding and building the asset of brand on this show. And if a company's been around long enough, they're going to find themselves eventually one day. You hope not, but eventually one day they're going to have some trouble that they've got to work through and potentially come back from. And Boeing is a great company. You mentioned Charleston. My father-in-law lives down there, um, not too far from the new new facility that you guys have down there. And it, what a wonderful boom to Northern Charleston that has happened because of Boeing coming into the, the state and into the economic development area there. And as you think about other people that are listening to this conversation and they're like, you must get a lot of calls. And you've done this a couple times or a few, a number of times now. What are you looking for when you're looking at one of these, like these next challenge that you want to try to tackle? Are there any elements that come to mind? Surprise here, Alan. I don't get any calls anymore. Everyone knows there's no place to go after Boeing. This is it. <laughs> so if, if I'm getting calls now, it's about, hey, who do you know who we should be putting in these roles? Uh, but to answer your question, I, I do think it starts with a combination of the leadership, the CEO, do I know her or him? What are their values, virtues? I think there's a part of the culture that is important for me and the societal impact of the company. 
And then it does get into some of the, the more specific questions around what is the nature of the challenge, the opportunity, the resources at bay, what does success look like? And, and do I find myself like intellectually drawn to it at where even if I wasn't being considered for the role, I'm curious about it. There's an intellectual curiosity and maybe almost a passion. And given this moment in society, I had a great job at AIG working for a CEO who is unparalleled in, in the insurance and candidly in the financial services space and Peter Zafino, who I consider a mentor and a sponsor and a great friend. But there was a moment in time where when this opportunity was presented to me, it was the throes of the pandemic and Boeing has a critical role to play in helping to keep people around the world safe and to help travelers resume confidently traveling, whether it's domestically or internationally. And there was almost a public service aspect to this, given Boeing's impact on our economy as one of the largest exporters and its impact on the global economy, certainly given the import of our products and services. So for me, there was a higher calling aspect to this particular opportunity. As you're thinking about other folks, peers, people that you know in the business, and they say, man, Ed, you have tackled so many of these crisis or challenge situations before. What tips or advice do you have? What, what can you share? Because I'm not the triple threat of Ed, meaning I'm not the marketer, communications lawyer, all combined in one. <laughs> what should I be doing? What should I be thinking about as I enter into the situation? I don't see them as crises or challenges. I see them as opportunities. And fundamentally, Boeing is a growth story. It is pandemic recovery, but a growth story. 80% of the people around the world have yet to take their first flight. When you think about the rising middle class who will dominate this century, it's about getting them up into whether it's space or getting them on their first plane to have that moment of mobility and, and to really capture their imagination of all they can be and produce to make society better. For me, that's a very different way of looking at things and looking at it solely through the lens of a crisis. And so I'm really much more drawn to the opportunity. It is true that most people sprint the opportunity and job to like the risk and applications. I'm always aware that maybe the point of entry for me has some complications around risk and reputational challenge, but really unearthing the opportunity for growth and long-term sustainable growth and societal impact, finding the essence of the purpose that's what I'm looking for. And I think most marketers or communicators who are fundamentally optimistic and growth oriented, other people, the media will characterize it as a crisis, as a disaster. I try not to be distracted by the headline of the day and really do focus on the overarching through line of opportunity, prosperity, peace, economic inclusion, other forms of inclusion, and then bringing that global lens, global growth orientation, it's worth the risk. It's worth the challenge. There's plenty to play for on the upside. As we look into 2022 and beyond, what do you see ahead for marketers and communication executives? So I've spent the last year with my leadership team, both direct and extended, challenging our thinking around, are we chief communications officers or are we chief change communications officers? would say that for the foreseeable future, I think that there's a significant amount of 
societal, economic, technological, health, mental health, cultural challenge and change that we're going to have to navigate through. And that's a form of engagement. And if you're not comfortable with that level of dynamic uncertainty, it's really hard to pull the through line and, and to really focus on measurable outcomes. And so I think for communicators who haven't thought about it that way, there's an opportunity there, which is always be embracing the change. Now, I think for me, it comes a little bit more intuitively for the reasons we've discussed before. But I do think for many marketers in particular, you know, the idea of year over year measurement is built on, on, along some baseline of assumptions that are not going to fundamentally change. No, you're so right. If you just look at the pandemic as one element of each quarter, and I can't even remember what we were doing in Q1, but I, I want to say it was like, we felt like we were coming out of this thing. And then Q2, it was like, everyone was out at restaurants and spending money and service economy was coming back and booming and employment was coming back. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Q3 felt like uh, we might be turning a corner. And then right at the end of Q3, I don't know if my timing is exactly right. Omicron comes out. <laughs> and now we're back into... I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but 2022 is coming. Who knows what the challenge of the day will be? I think we just know there will be more. And so the message for marketers, for communicators, is to really think opportunistically about what the upside is. Not to be dismissive and not to take unnecessary risks, but really to, to focus on where the upside of opportunity one of the elements as you talk and as you talk about each of these opportunities and I do get the reframe is critical to getting excited about it because it is an opportunity like you've described before. But as you reframe those things, how much perspective do you have focus on the inside of the company versus the, what's going on in the external environment? There's probably a 10 to 15% delta that the variance accounts for different industries, right? So most recently out of professional services and maybe not so much the insurance side, but certainly the brokerage side of Marsh and McLennan, the world's largest professional services company, which is where I was before AIG, Marsh, the world's largest, largest insurance broker, there's a very close correlation to market activity that takes place there. And there's an, a persona that brokers have that's very similar to traders. 
they really are very agile and nimble and they are constantly absorbing information and stimuli and have great lateral vision, not just seeing what's directly in front of them, not really fixing on what they just passed through looking behind, but really just scanning peripherally with an active lens to see what is it that's about to come next that might not be directly in my field of vision. That is fundamentally different uh, because it has a much more externalized view than, for example, being whether it was at ABC or even at Boeing, which at the end of the day have a manufacturing process-driven component to it. At ABC and part of Disney, manufacturing, producing content is produced from external sources, but the process is the thing the marketing, the distribution, the measurement, the commercialization is the thing. And certainly at Boeing, there is a phrase that, that you hear early and often about being down and inside the business and having a real clear and healthy, in certain cases, very rich respect for the engineering expertise that is the core of the DNA of the company. And my year at the company, I've really learned to appreciate, affirm, respect, and really celebrate that culture that is so process-driven. It is so focused on methodology. And it's not to say that you're not external in terms of being aware of the impact of the company and everything else, but it is much more about getting down and in and making sure that you're eye level with the issues that are being addressed. That makes a lot of sense, especially when the the industry, to your point, is process-driven. And in your case at Boeing, it's very technical. It's a long cycle business, which I've really come to appreciate in the same way that fashion is a really short, almost disposable cycle business of multiple seasons. And you can miss with one collection in one season and hit in the next. It is a long cycle of development, certification and then commercialization, and then production, manufacturing, delivery, service maintenance on the commercial side, and then very similar analogy on our defense and space side too, conceptualization, testing, development, certification, quantification, launch. Decisions that get made have real implication, and they need to be thought through in a very long and deliberative fashion. One of the other things we're in the middle of right now is the great resignation is what they're calling it. This record unemployment or employment change that's being driven a lot, of, I think, by workers just trying to figure out where a better place for them is. I'm curious if there's any lessons that you think about as you think about talent and pipeline of talent for other business leaders. Yeah, it's an opportunity to, to, to think about talent differently. Not easy, not always a, a direct path. For me, what I can tell you is we are in a moment in time in which some of the things that historically have mattered for organizations, they still matter, but there are a handful of things that matter most to, to, to people who are considering where they work. The societal impact, and am I working for a company that makes a difference? And am I working in an industry, in a company that is virtuous, that is putting employee health and safety and welfare first and foremost, 
where I can bring my full self, where I can talk about things like mental health, where I can talk about diversity and inclusion and real true meaningful advancement in those areas. Am I working for a company that is taking action and, and deliberative and explicit accountability around sustainability and making our environment and, and planet more sustainable and healthier? Those things have never been more transparent. I think in a moment in time in which physical safety and, and physical health became so predominant where people were at home and, and it gave them, I think, the opportunity to step back and think about things differently, it will always be important for, for private sector organization to be profitable, to be productive, but they've got to be purposeful. And that purpose has got to be clear and well understood by all of its stakeholders. And the purpose has to have some direct connection to benefiting society and man and womankind. And yes, Wall Street exists for a very specific reason. And it's to help be a catalyst for prosperity and growth around the world. And if you can make your purpose clearly understood through that frame, it's a lot different than just saying, Come work for us because we pay the highest starting salary. Those things are transitory and they don't, they may draw people in, but they won't keep people there. And so for me, when I'm thinking about what is the great resignation, it's really the great reshuffle from my perspective and really making sure that purposeful engagement in which we always lean into our profitability, our production, our performance but it's in the context of what our purpose is and what our company exists to do and how we benefit and impact society. Those are the wins. It does seem a lot like the other opportunities you've tackled for other companies where you've got these different stakeholders coming to the table. This time it's the employee base, right? The associates that work and they have options. And how do you drive into your purpose, your reason for being that is in line with your financial objectives, but can also be a place that inspires and motivates the people you want to work there. And so to me, it just feels like diplomacy at its best (laughs) when you could satisfy all of those different needs and stakeholders. And ultimately you need them. You need the employees to create them. But to your point, you need the, you need wall street because they fuel your ability to keep it going. I think at the the heart of all really uh, compelling diplomacy is is no small amount of empathy, the ability to listen, identify with others, and to take their considerations into account. And if ever there was a moment to be thinking about that now with an outside-in perspective, it, it is certainly now. The volatility and the velocity of some of the issues that we're all navigating, you can have the world's greatest products and not treat your employees well or distribute a very off-toned message. And it all can go away in a day. And I think we've always thought that reputations were much more built and won or lost really in the field of competition head-to-head around market share in a particular category. That is still true. The product is really the people and the culture that you built. And if you've not built something that is empowering insightful, inclusive, that has empathy, then even if you were building a great product or service, 
that's going to be temporary because the culture that that drives it isn't set up for resilience and stability and stamina. I think it's a fundamental change there. You've got this upbringing, cultivating your global perspective. I'm curious if you have ideas or thoughts about what marketers and leaders need to be doing differently to compete on a global stage. Boeing is a very unique enterprise because we are a long cycle business. And so I think that there are some very specific demand curves that will drive our company over time. And I think that's net really, really positive. I think for most marketers, it's hard to, to talk global when you've not really immersed yourself in what that marketplace and that experience looks like. There's a guy named Scott McKenzie, who for many years, I had the privilege of working with at Nielsen. He was a former wartime correspondent, native of Australia, who would just immerse himself in local cultures and to watch what he would be able to pull out in the way of insights, for example, about the rising middle class in India after having gone and lived in communities for an extended period of time to really understand how fast moving opportunity is there. It's more than just a couple of slides with data points on a PowerPoint. It really is that immersive experience. And I do think for marketers, we're particularly challenged now because that sort of immersive environmental experience is difficult to pull off in the midst of the pandemic. But to be sure, the recovery, just as the pandemic looks very different culture by culture, country by country, the recovery will have some fundamental resets in terms of how we think about growth and opportunity and uplift. And I think it will just really be ever more critical for marketers to get out of their comfort zone. In fact, to never live in their comfort zone. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to think differently. In many respects, we're, we're all hunkered down trying to navigate through the pandemic. And I think we realize we're not going back to the way things were. We're not going back to normal. But whatever next normal is, it will have some elements of the past, but it will be fundamentally and radically different. And in a lot of what our work is driven and anchored by, there's a measurement science, there's market share, that's data that's year over year that we're comparing to. And again, I don't know. I don't know how relevant the past will be and helping us really seize opportunities moving forward. And that's something that I think marketers are going to have to get very comfortable with, which is just this rapidly changed landscape. Just like leaders are going to have to navigate to a very different set of experiences and expectations in the workforce among their employees, it's the exact same thing with our customers. Marketers will really need to think about what you might have alluded to several times before, which is like this idea of a domestic and a foreign policy that puts their products and services in the context of a broader purpose, why we exist as a company and how we exist to really uplift our employees, and our associates. That's a little bit of the internal component. And the external part is really like our societal impact and the difference we make and why you should buy or why you should support our products and services, because it, it's not enough that they perform well. It actually is more important that they perform well and they have a positive impact on society and the communities where we all live and breathe. 
I love those. I love those thoughts. And I, I agree wholeheartedly. I think you may have identified the next wave that we need to be focused on, which is partners in the supply side of things. I know it's an issue we hear about in the news, supply chains and, and the like, but not from a marketing standpoint, right? Not from a like, why should my partners be continuing to do business with me and stay a part of my ecosystem, so to speak? It's a very thoughtful. Uh, you've got my head spinning now. <laughs> <Ed>. <laughs> I want to switch gears because there's a series of questions I ask everyone that comes on the show, and I want to ask them to you. We've known each other for many years now, but I'm looking forward to learning a couple new things here. My favorite question to ask is, has there been an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you are today? I don't know that there's one experience. I would say that there are a couple of things that I'm really passionate and focused on right now that are core to who I am. I have the privilege of serving as the chair of the board of the Susan G. Komen Breast Cancer Foundation. And it is some really purposeful work that we are involved in, which is trying to put an end to breast cancer. The mission could not be more clear there are some very disparate outcomes, particularly for women of color, African-American women, for example, 40% more likely to have a more serious diagnosis as a result of just structural challenges. That is something that we should all be focused on. Without healthy women, there are not healthy families. Without healthy families, there are not healthy communities. And therefore, we don't have a healthy society or an economy. And I'm really privileged to serve as an ally to help advance the meaningful research and clinical efforts to eradicate this terrible disease and to uplift women and therefore all of us. The challenge we face there in the short term, of course, is that COVID has made it harder and more challenging for all of us to do the regular screenings and, and testing to make sure that we're healthy. So it's a purposeful work and the ability to serve on behalf of others and to enable them to accomplish things is critical. The other is I am the vice chair of something called the ELC, which is the Executive Leadership Council, which is a cohort of roughly 800 senior African-Americans in corporate America who are working day in and day out from the inside out and the outside in to really create more equitable and inclusive corporations and an economy, which we all know the data shows works more efficiently, is more productive and, and more profitable. And there are some long-standing challenges facing Black executives. And even with the recent focus on certain issues over the last year to year and a half, the data suggests that the trend line is not moving in the right direction. And so for us to be an economy, a culture, a society that reaches its highest aspirations, everyone has got to be able to have equal opportunity, not equal outcomes. We're not dictating equal outcomes. We're just dictating environments and best practices that facilitate equal opportunities for, for everyone. That's important work. I wouldn't be here uh, where I am today if others hadn't advocated to give people like me an opportunity. And I feel a very significant amount of responsibility to do that for others. Those are two amazing causes. And what a powerful both of them are extremely powerful, but there's 800 leaders in the Executive Leadership Council. Like that, that, that must be an unbelievably powerful group of people. It's an impressive group of people. And 800 sounds like it's a really large number when you actually put it in the context of Fortune 500 companies and how many people serve on executive leadership teams of each of those 500 companies. 800 is a really small number. It speaks to side opportunity, but it's a very impressive group. What advice would you give your younger self if you're starting this journey all over again? 
to be patient, to, to have a little bit more faith and optimism. The one thing I know that I was always very focused on was trying to make sure that the people who made sacrifices to create an opportunity for people like me, that I didn't squander it. And so I was always very focused on almost striving and making sure that if someone cracked the door open for me, that I busted it wide open. And that is a noble endeavor, but it's a long game. And so to really focus on what you're passionate about, if you focus on the work and you're passionate about it and you do it really well, the rest takes care of itself. Was there a topic you think you believe marketers need to be learning more about? I will tell you that the long challenge for us continues, which is to really make sure that at the senior levels of your organization, I'm talking about the CFO and the CEO and perhaps the board, that there's a common framework of understanding for men and evaluative criteria around what the success is. The short tenure of CMOs and CCOs and CMCOs is largely driven by the lack of understanding of or the common expectations in the role. And I think some of that needs to be defined upfront, obviously, but it is something that needs to be refreshed on a quarterly, if not more frequent interval, or else all of the great work is either misunderstood or not really fully appreciated because the, the metrics against which you're being measured are not clear. Amen to that. <laughs> You've already talked about two causes that are near and dear to your heart. I'm curious if there's, on a personal note, are there any brands or companies that you follow or you think other people should take notice of? There are a handful of brands that have always impressed me. I won't go into specifics now, but what I would say is the ability to really, really narrow in on the customer persona and the customer journey is critical. And I don't mean anticipating doing the predictive analytics and, well, Ed, if you like the color blue in this shirt, you might like color green as well. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about just the intuitive experience of interacting with the product and service in a sense that there's empathy and understanding from the customer perspective, not easy to pull off. And again, I'm not going to get into the game of who does it well and who doesn't, but I think marketers, we bring a very refined sense of that to it. Our palate is very refined in that regard. And there's nothing more pleasurable than having a really great brand experience, even if you're not buying something, even if it's just through customer service and the customer inquiry, when that works, it is gratifying. And to do something so simple is so hard. It's so true. Last question for you. What do you feel is either the largest opportunity or threat to marketers? Close to 25 years ago, if you talk to CEOs, they would tell you the two biggest marketing opportunities were diversity and digital. And you look 25 years later and the digital piece has been addressed, but we haven't really found a meaningful way to really capitalize on what are the significant growth opportunities by looking at the global marketplace in a truly inclusive and diverse fashion. And that is, that's to our detriment. And I think we as marketers should always be at the vanguard of just pushing for greater understanding of the evolving customer landscape. And as I said before, if you just think about it, 80% of people around the world have yet to take their first flight. What 
will their impact be when they start to unleash their spending power around the world and start to travel and see that mobility? It, it will lead to a fundamentally different sense of what the middle class is, and it will look less and less like us. And our ability to recognize that now, get comfortable with that now and embrace it, that is the key goal for a marketer. A marketer should be a diplomat going to as far part of the world as you could possibly go to and embracing a new culture, a new identity, and recognizing there's real opportunity there. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with support from my team and podcast editors, sound engineers, and writers at Share Your Genius. Find them at shareyourgenius.com. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe on marketingtodaypodcast.com and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners. You can contact me on marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you will also find complete show notes, links to what was discussed in the episode today, and you can search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.